So this is my daughter. She uh, plays lots of Minecraft, right? You play yeah. lots of Minecraft? Yeah. How old are you? Five. Yeah? What are you building right now? Obsidian. <laughs> obsidian? You're building obsidian? Obsidian walls. Obsidian walls for what? The rest of the house, it broke. The house broke? How did your house break? Um, I have no idea. Probably a creeper. Oh, okay. You want to tell me anything else about what you've been working on? No. No? Do you have any thoughts on the new Intel CPUs? Um, <laughs> not. No? Do you think they're going to be fast? Do you think they're going to make up the deficiencies that they've had recently? No. Oh, do you think it's uh, just uh, trying to have them save face and uh, try and make people think that uh, they're heading in the right direction? Mm, yes. Oh, okay. You're very insightful. Welcome to ALH. Today we're going to probably talk about a little bit more VR stuff that we missed last time. Maybe talk about my adventures with Ubiquity recently and the Rev.ai that I've been using for transcription. Should we go right into a follow-up? Um, one of the games that we neglected to mention last time was uh, Brookhaven, which Mark also tried when he was over here. Um, not entirely sure how we missed that other than our own negligence. Brookhaven is sort of a survival zombie shooter thing. It was in early access for quite some time, and I think is finally officially released. And the idea is you you have a gun and limited ammo, and waves of zombies come at you. And what did you think of that one? Brookhaven was the first game I've ever played where it really felt like uh, an in-game gun is accurate. You didn't feel that way about um, about Super Hot. It's more along the lines of. I don't know. It's super hot. It didn't. I guess the bullets don't instantaneously connect with super hot. So that might have been part of it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense then. Yeah. With Brookhaven, the closest thing I can relate it to are those old arcade games, which actually have guns or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the uh, Nintendo Zapper. Dakan. It was <laughs> right. It was kind of surreal having something which I'm holding in my hand that's not a gun. And then within the VR system, seeing my hand is actually a gun mm -hmm. that I can point and uh, shoot at the enemies there. Did you get any sort of effect from when like the zombies are right on top of you or anything like that? I mean, yeah, you kind of feel that uh, that feeling of urgency, like, oh, God, they're right next to me. Sort, sort of like if you get touched by a, a spider in real life. <laughs> <laughs> so the one thing I find with Brookhaven that isn't as true to real life is that I feel like in real life, I would be looking around a lot faster. Oh, in Brookhaven, I feel like I need to be more careful first off because I have equipment on my head. Mm -hmm. And second of all, because, um, I'm worried that if I turn around fast, I'll start getting motion sickness. Oh, really? Even though it's your own controlled motion? See, I didn't actually get motion sickness from Brookhaven, but I think it's more of that reluctance and not being familiar to VR yet. Uh, you know, not trying to test um, the limits of how far I can go before I start feeling sick. Yeah, what I found is 
anything where you are in complete control of your movement does not get you sick. And so if there's a one-to-one correlation between like your head moving and you moving in the game world, that usually won't matter no matter no matter how fast you move as long as the game is able to keep up it's when you are or when the game is forcing a movement that you're not actually making yourself is when you run into problems so it's pretty much your brain's sight not agreeing with what your inner ear is saying basically yeah i'm curious if there's actually ever going to be any kind of compensation for that kind of thing yeah actually when i played um when i went to the Penny Arcade Expo, they had a VR racing thing where you actually sat in a racing chair and it had um, it w- it had motion and everything. And unlike other VR racing games, that didn't make me motion sick at all. Just, um, just having the limited um, forces back on me was enough to co- uh, compensate for that. Well, what kind of motion are we talking about here? Um, just like a when you accelerate hard, it like pushes you a little bit back, I guess pushes on your back, breaking hard the opposite direction. If you hit a bump uh, and, and you go up in the game, it goes a little bump on the chair. Um, and I think that just just having those cues there was enough to not get motion sick. I mean, that would work within a racing game, but I don't see that working in every single kind of scenario. Now, for something like Lone Echo, um, the question is, would there ever be any kind of way to compensate for that kind of movement? So there I'm not actually sure because supposedly a lot of astronauts get sick too. (laughs) (laughs) So it might just be something that's inherent to the motion. Take medication. Yeah, I guess so. There's people who get sick on roller coasters. So even if you match it completely, you still might get sick just because you would have gotten sick in real life. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, where my mind was going right now is if there was some kind of uh, potential future implant, you know, when we're go- <laughs> you know, we're going into the field of uh, pretty much uh, people becoming cyborg-like. Why not have something that uh, actively affects the inner ear that uh, that makes you feel like you're going in particular directions? Yeah, yeah, I th- I think that would be good. Um, I know that there's been research about like messing with people's I don't know if it's the inner ear or the signal that gets sent, but um, they can basically force people to walk in a particular direction by messing with their sense of balance. And so they they move people forward, backward, left, right, um, by making their inner ear basically give them false data. See, that was one of the things that bothered me within the movie The Matrix, is that in the Matrix, they have, you know, the uh, connection on the back of their neck. Mm -hmm. But uh, that connection would have nothing. I mean, how would that be able to interfere with whatever's happening with their inner ear or their ears or anything like that? So I had just assumed that it just takes over all of your senses, as in Mm -hmm. you don't even receive the signals from the rest of your body kind of thing. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it wouldn't exactly be immersive if you're in the Matrix and, you know, you're not feeling any sense of motion at all. Spoilers from the 1990s. Right. So, anyhow, going back to Brookhaven, it was neat and I wish I had more time with it. I wish I had more time to get some of the nicer guns and see uh, see if it was actually possible to get a gun which would mow down a bunch of the zombies really, really quickly. Yeah, I haven't actually gotten that far in it either, so I don't really know. 
And the game was so different from when I had played it. So they've done a ton of updates. Originally, it was basically like one level and then a progression from there and like maybe a power up between levels. But when you played it, like there was all these options I had never seen before. (laughs) Yeah, video game development is kind of weird nowadays. I mean, we grew up in the 80s. So, you know, we were used to video games being complete. And, uh, you know, now you can get all these games that have early access where, you know, you're getting the fraction of the game and then within a year or so you end up getting a fully fledged game. In some cases, it's like a double edged sword because early access makes people sort of more excited about it and can help fund development. But on the other hand, people might go and see something and just completely write it off, even though the game is completely different when it's released and actually a lot better. And sometimes there's just uh, the games where they get early access and the game doesn't really form into anything. It just kind of stays in the state that it's in when it was first released on early access. Right. And then there's Minecraft, where you made millions of dollars before it even exited early access. <laughs> millions? Talk uh, more like billions. Well, I, th- I think when he sold it, he was out of early access. Oh, Okay. Yeah, I <laughs> I haven't really played much Minecraft. I mean, I would say the total amount of time I've spent in it is under 10 minutes. That is not very much time. There is also uh, Minecraft VR, which I guess I could have also shown you. Yeah, I've watched people play Minecraft. I haven't actually played much of it myself. My kids play it endlessly. Is Brookhaven a game that you can actually play outside of VR, or does it require VR? I'm pretty sure it requires VR. I mean, interesting. I could see something similar to it just with mouse look and shooting, but um, I don't imagine it would be as fun. No, definitely not. Yeah, I thought of it as uh, Dawn of the Dead, except in VR. Uh, Another one of the popular shooting ones is called Space Pirate Trainer, which I unfortunately did not have time to show you. But on that one, you pick various guns and you can dual wield guns. Um And there's basically little drones that are coming at you and shooting at you. And so there's a combination of doing things like dodging and shooting at them, which is pretty involved. Um, One of the things that you can hold in your other hand if you want a different gun is is a shield. So you can block shots at the same time as you're... How fast are the shots approaching you if you have a shield that you're able to block it with? They're they're not like bullet speed, so they're they're slow enough that you have a chance at actually hitting them. And also, if it gets close enough to you, time slows down for a little bit to allow you to move to to block or dodge. See, uh, when you say space pirates, I think of uh, Metroid. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Metroid VR. Metroid VR would be great. Platforming seems like it would be difficult. There's a game called Windlands that is a platformer that my son really likes um or at least he played a bunch of it where Mm -hmm. you have a grappling hook for each arm and you try and basically get to the end of the level grappling onto things like trees and whatnot it sounds like pitfall in vr i was thinking bionic commando in vr was there anything else for brookhaven no i think i'm good I guess while we're on the topic of VR, uh, I played Accounting Plus and got all the way through that. And it is an utterly ridiculous game. So what do you do in Accounting Plus? 
Well, ostensibly, you do accounting in VR. <laughs> How does that work? It doesn't. Um, <laughs> but that's like only the very beginning of the game, and it gets really weird from there. So you were saying that Accounting Plus is made by the same people who did the Stanley Parable. Yeah, it's it's a collaboration between the guy who made the Stanley Parable, which I loved, and one of the guys from Rick and Morty. And so they're similar to Rick and Morty. There is endless rambling dialogue um, <laughs> from various characters in the game. And it is, it's just really nuts. Um, I, it's hard to give any sort of examples without spoiling it. Then in the very beginning, it's welcome. This is a safe place. This is your safe square. I'm going to give you a short test. You want to move over there. Fantastic. That's wonderful. <laughs> you're doing great. It sounds like you're in the test chamber. Yeah, that's sort of the beginning. And it, it's sort of a little bit ASMR-y. I guess oh. they're not whispering, but it's sort of a calm voice. I guess, no, maybe not ASMR. Well, um, ASMR, ASMR can be calm voices, not yeah. just whispering. I mean, look at Bob Ross, right? Yeah. You, you, oh, like the very first thing I do, I think is they'll ask you to like, look around. You, you looked around just fantastically here, <laughs> have a trophy and the trophy appears out of midair and like lands on you. And <laughs> I'm just. I'm trying to picture this, you know, you're expecting a game about accounting. Well, that's just the that's just the part before you even start the game. Like <laughs> where they're doing trying to do it's sort of like the menu screen. Mm. Except the menu screen is it's incredibly difficult to describe this game. Why do I get a feeling that there is zero accounting involved in this game? Well, that would be a spoiler, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <clears throat> Well, next time I'm up there, I'd like to try it. Yes, you definitely should. Hmm. I'm sure this game would also feed on your desire to be malevolent. See, that was one of the things that was great within the Stanley Parable, is that it gave the player so many opportunities to not listen to the narrator. Mm -hmm. So in this game, the narrator is kind of non-existent. It's replaced by a couple of other characters that are basically your boss. Um, and they come in every once in a while. And there's like this really weird meta radio at one point where you can tune to various stations and like all of the levels that you had been playing previously have audio from them and like, but it's like remixed in weird ways or like talking about other things. It's really strange. Yeah, that sounds bizarre. But I mean, I uh, that's one of the tropes that I really like within uh, a lot of modern games is a lot of modern games have radios where you think it's the game music, but then you end up shutting the radio off or destroying the radio and the music turns off. Uh, so anything else on the VR front to talk about? Nope, I don't think so. So I am kind of interested in the whole uh, Intel CPU thing. So, I mean, this is a story from, I want to say back in December. We're always up to date here on ALH. Intel just gave us a glimpse at the near future of CPUs. And, uh, some of the stuff is interesting on there. They're looking to stack the uh, gates higher than they do traditionally on other CPUs. 
yeah, supposedly they have been researching this kind of thing for a long time and they're 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 sort of implying that oh this is why we haven't made that's why we're not too concerned about us not making as much progress on these other fronts like the uh smaller process and other things because we've been working on this extra special stacking technology oh i have so many questions regarding that i mean uh what I'm curious about is uh, how did they do things like handling thermals? Yeah, that's exactly what I was wondering about too, because normally, how how do you dissipate that heat from the center? Yeah, I think of it right now that you have modern CPUs. You know, just uh, they're the packages by themselves. You don't stack one CPU on top of another anyway. You have a CPU and then a heatsink and then a bunch of CPUs next to each other. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what I'm wondering about here is that, is this good for only, you know, really low power situations? Yeah, it seems like maybe it would be possibly a a burst kind of thing, or um, it allows them to have more customized pieces of circuitry, Um, as in each layer would not be expected to be used at the same time because they have sort of a different purpose from each other. And so if you're not using all the layers at the same time, so like into each individual layer, you could make some optimizations that would make it super fast, but it doesn't necessarily work in a more general kind of way. Um, and, And so you would basically be using whatever layer is most optimal for whatever you're trying to tackle. And that way you could avoid the thermal issue. I don't know. Uh, This reminds me a whole lot of, uh, I want to say five years ago, that uh, Intel was working on something called Larrabee. Yeah, that worked out, didn't it? Yeah, which uh, from what I recall, it was uh, 48 very, very small CPU cores. Right. So, I mean, uh, one of the things I wonder about here is that uh, if you're stacking higher, if you can have a whole bunch of, say, small, low power, uh, lower performance CPUs on the bottom part of the package. Oh, oh, it's sort of like a power per watt kind of thing. Like, yeah, sort of like how Apple has a number of core has the low performance and the high performance cores, and they use each according to their um, computing and power draw requirements at the time. I mean, you think that it would make sense to have the uh, lower power circuitry on the very bottom. That way you don't have to worry about heat dissipation the same way as you would something that's higher performance, higher well, wattage. I, I would think that you would have it in the center because you could still dissipate heat from the bottom, right? Oh, I see. You know, going through the circuit board, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose so. I was just thinking about how the top part of the CPU generally has the thermal grease and the uh, heat spreader and then eventually the fan. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I suppose if it's something that's really low wattage, it's something that would dissipate by itself, you know, passively. Can you can you imagine like having new motherboards that basically have a hole in them where you 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 go and you stick the CPU into the hole and it has uh, heat sinks on both sides of it? Uh, I mean... I could see it that way, but then uh, it would require an entire redesign of just how uh, the inside of a computer looks. Yeah. Either that or you're making it like a double wide. (laughs) I compute in a double wide. 
<laughs> so, um, getting back to um, their pre-announcement, they were saying that the uh, GPUs are going to be a lot faster. But then we hear that every single time Intel tries to put something out. Yeah, I remember like with the Lorabee or whatever, they're like, oh, yeah, we can do ray tracing now on our on our thing because we have so many discrete cores and they're so general purpose and that ever pan out. I mean, what I didn't even remember seeing any tech demos of that. Were there any? Uh, not that I remember. Maybe that wasn't Lorabee. Maybe that was something else that was similar. Hmm. I don't know. Intel seems to repeat themselves a lot what was also interesting within the article is that they were talking about doing their own discrete gpu in 2020 yeah i'm just sort of wondering who who they hired for that because intel does not seem like the place to go if you want to work on cool discrete gpu stuff and i mean also in addition to them having actual hardware that's decent enough where you would go out and buy it and add it to your computer, they would also have to account for all of the uh, API stuff and all the special things that dedicated GPUs do that, uh, you know, these integrated ones don't. Yeah, I, I'll believe it when I see it as so, so far as having a decent one. I mean, you never know. I mean, sometimes uh, they may come out of nowhere i mean remember for a while that uh, intel had the pentium 4 and uh, amd was that athlon yeah amd had the athlon and ended up uh, having a better performing product for a little while mm-hmm. and then eventually intel started firing on all cylinders again so it's entirely possible that intel will come back and do something that's actually decent performing yeah or they'll die in a fire <laughs> i i mean i don't I hope they don't die in a fire. No, I, I don't. I would rather there be competition. They, they die in a fire caused by the thermal inefficiencies of their new stacking CPUs. Yeah. They said in the article that they were going to do some things that are tailored towards things like AI. Oh, yeah, because that's what everyone is doing. That makes me wonder if they're doing something similar to what Apple's doing on their modern processors. Yeah, their, their neural core. Do you think it's something that big, or do you think it's just a couple new additional instructions? My guess is closer to what Apple did, uh, because you need a bunch of parallel units in order for that to work. So so probably something that can do a lot of tensor operations. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see it, just as long as it's something that can be adopted by AMD. Because, I mean, it would be completely awful to have something which is only used on, you know, only used and optimized on Intel processors. AMD might just end up having their own thing. But then doesn't AMD also have a cross-licensing agreement? Yeah, they, and, and AMD has the, the like, the standard 64-bit uh, instruction set, right? Yeah, they uh, they were actually the ones that did that first, and Intel ended up taking that from them. Right. So they they sort of, AMD and Intel sort of have incentive to play with each other. Is this, uh, do you know any details about why this is in place? Is it uh, something to do with uh, Monopoly? You mean the cross-license stuff? Yeah, the the cross-licensing. Do they do to avoid monopolistic restrictions or lawsuits or anything like that? So I believe for the original x86 stuff, um, Intel was not particularly protective of it in the first place, which is what allowed uh, AMD to 
get involved in other clones. And so that was actually, I don't think that they realized that they would have, be losing as much of a market advantage by licensing out that spec. And since that one was doomed to be used by everyone anyway, and AMD made the second, the 64-bit spec, Intel's kind of forced to, to, to deal with them. <laughs> I remember that, uh, what was it? That Intel wanted everybody to switch over to the Itanium architecture. Yeah, they had an entirely different CPU architecture that ended up gaining absolutely no traction. <laughs> and then AMD comes along and does their whole 64-bit extensions to x86 and everybody jumps on it. Yeah, the uh, the Itanium, the register used to call that chip the Itanic. <laughs> it, it was. <laughs> It, it pretty much ended up not being used at all in any, you know, in any large capacity. There's only one space on the 64-bit raft. <sighs> so, uh, yeah, Itanium is Jack and x86 <laughs> is Rose. What have we come to here on ALH? <laughs> what do you think the, the whole purpose of this announcement is? I mean, I think the timing of this announcement has to do with uh, them pretty much laying people's fears to rest. I do think that there is something to the announcement. It's just that it was entirely premature. Yeah, it seems like because AMD is starting to have a little bit of a leg up with their Ryzen stuff um, and their process, well, not their process, I guess, but the process that they're using that Intel feels pressured to get people to not jump ship it's so funny that i didn't think that amd would have a comeback like this i thought that they would kind of end up dying the same way that cyrex ended up dying in the 90s when they uh, decided to stop having their own fabs yeah they just keep on going they've been uh supplied tons of money with all of the gpus that they put into video game consoles <laughs> hmm interesting yeah, interesting point. You're probably right about that. Yeah, for a long time, like they've been supplying virtually all of the GPUs and consoles. I think NVIDIA now has the one in the Switch, but I think that's the only major console that has an NVIDIA one. Hmm. Do you think it'll stay that way for a while? For, you know, like PlayStation 5 and Xbox 2? I don't know what it's going to be called. I, I suspect that, yeah, it'll probably stay AMD in the consoles for a while just because they're more willing to make price concessions than NVIDIA is. And also not to mention there's going to be probably backwards compatibility mm -hmm. for these next round of consoles. Yeah, that definitely makes the backward compatibility easier. Something to consider, which I found really interesting, is these consoles are now x86. Mm -hmm. That they went from, like with Xbox, it went from uh, the first Xbox was x86, and then they went to something custom, and now they went back to x86. Right. I believe they had a, like a PowerPC one, right? For the one in, for the 360? Uh, that sounds right. I remember it being some kind of tri-core thing done by, I want to say, IBM. Is that right? So it was, yeah, it's a 64-bit PowerPC design by IBM. Was there anything else you think to talk about on uh, the uh, Intel article? No, I think that's about it. Well, one thing of interest that I just thought about, stacking circuitry like this would actually be useful for things like memory. So 
rather than having you know more CPU logic, you just have ridiculous amounts of cache on your chip. Yeah, and it could be centrally located to deal with speed of light issues and hmm. stuff like that. Does uh, actual CPU circuitry have to deal with that heavily? Uh, speed of light issues, yes. Yeah. You, yeah, you, you do actually need to deal with the time it takes to propagate across the chip. Hmm. And so physically locating memory closer is a definite advantage. In this case, do you think the memory would end up being on the bottom? And then the actual circuitry would end up being on top. That that might be the way that they would do it. And then you could have just like an entire layer of memory. And then each sort of processing unit could have access to, to both all the cache, but sort of uh, use the one that's closest to it. Isn't that the difference? Isn't that something with like a giant L3 cache? Isn't that what they generally do on CPUs now? Like I recall L1 being dedicated to each CPU, but then either L2 or L3 ends up being shared. Mm -hmm. L3 cache is still on the CPU itself. And then um, it's centrally located with the cores surrounding it. And it already takes up a good amount of the die space. That alone would probably be a huge advancement if they can stack that. Yeah, if they put, if they put the L3 cache like directly underneath the cores so you could get some faster access that way i mean you could think you could probably have you know dedicated l2 directly beneath each core yeah and then you know since uh if l2 is not shared then you have that cache directly underneath and then you don't have to worry about propagation issues as much Mm -hmm. since it's right next to the active core where things are happening to be clear i'm not sure how much of this is actually already done even because there's currently more than one layer it's just that it's not super stacked like the articles seem to indicate what i'd love to see is realistically how much is the stacking going to be are you going from say six layers to 20 layers or are you going from six layers to 100 layers right i I think that wraps up our intel do we want to move on to i guess rev ai yeah sure so after my previous discussion about uh, Temi and what I was doing to get that to work with editing the podcast, uh, someone from, I guess, that company uh, had tweeted at me uh, say, suggesting that maybe I try Rev AI, which is the same audio engine as Temi, except that it's just an API and not like a full like editing thing. Because with Temi, it you have a little editor and a, a GUI for managing your transcript and everything like that. Where RevII, uh, you have a, a number of you have a, a couple different options for getting it back, but it's all done programmatically either with curl or they also have a Python API. I'm currently using the the Python API, which which does seem to be pretty early, but it works and is usable. The advantage here is that it costs like three cents a minute instead of 10 cents a minute. And I can automate things a little bit more because I don't have to go through their web interface. So uh, what I ended up doing is I wrote a, uh, a little management script for myself for uh, submitting the audio and then grabbing back uh, the transcription 
from the audio. You have a choice between a like a text return of the transcript and a uh, JSON one. The the text one uh, ended up not really working because it had too much uh, too much of a conversation uh, at one time that didn't map very well to my Audacity labels. And so I wrote a quick conversion script uh, to go from their JSON uh, to the Audacity labels. And I tried to put roughly 80 characters on a line uh, worth of text and map that to the, um, the start and end audio times that it gives for like every single word. And then that goes into Audacity, and it actually, it, it actually works better than how I was doing with Temi before, because so when I was exporting to the SRT files, it didn't map exactly to how much text I wanted there to be for an individual audio item, and I can control it a little bit better now. So I'm actually I'm curious about some things. So uh, just for everybody who listens to this podcast, um. When we're about to put out a podcast, Richard sends me over a MP3 for me to listen to that he pretty much went together and edited. And he also sends me a labels.txt file, which includes timestamps and trans and uh, pretty much transcription. So uh, from my perspective, one of some of the things I'm curious about is when you send me the labels file, is that an export from Audacity? That is an export from Audacity. So it's slightly okay. differently formatted than the one that I import. I mean, it's the same basic format. It's like a timestamp with uh, that's tab delimited. I, I don't like align it as nicely as uh, Audacity does. Um, <laughs> I just use the tabs and I don't care about like if all the numbers actually line up or not. And uh, also what I'm kind of curious about is that uh, when you end up submitting stuff to the uh, transcription API, do you send a combined MP3 file or are you sending uh, different streams for each of us? So the first part of my process is I go and merge all the audio. Um, okay. So I, I generate an MP3 file. It's usually a little bit higher quality than what I put up just because um, I'm not as concerned about uh, space and download size and whatnot. And then I, I uh, submit that file to their API. What I was thinking would be kind of interesting is that if you submitted the file separately, then you would be able to avoid some of the issues with things like crosstalk. Yeah, maybe I could try that. But the problem is then I would be paying for it twice because mm-hmm. it does it based off of per minute. And basically it would double my price. And I don't need super accurate transcriptions. individual. For, I, I just need to know roughly what was said for what points in time. For the purpose of parsing the conversation and cutting out extraneous parts, etc. Yeah, I'm, I could probably get a, a more accurate transcription if I divided it up. I don't think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my understanding is that you were saying that uh, you end up getting a JSON output, and that JSON output, that's not directly importable into Audacity. You have to do some kind of parsing first. Yeah, I, I mean, it's Audacity label format is basically what I send you. Um, mm-hmm. it's a tab delimited format where it's a start time and end time, and then the text that is said. The JSON that they have is they they call it a like they have, it's basically an array of what they call monologues, 
which is what they break down the sets of text into. And that that's, ends up being far longer than what I actually want to put on an Audacity line. And so I, I iterate through those and I grab um, basically just what is in the, there's a value field, which is the actual word. And the each word has a timestamp start and a timestamp end and a, a confidence level that I don't actually do anything with. <laughs> um, and then there's also punctuation values that do not have uh, timestamps associated with them uh, that get so inserted. You, uh, where does it get inserted? Is it own entry or at the end of words? Uh, they're in between words usually. Mm. So basically what you're doing is it sounds like you're clumping together a lot of the words at a specific timestamp for, you know, for segments of time. Yeah, basically I, I clump together enough words to basically fit on a line. And then I keep track of the first timestamp for that collection and that last timestamp for that collection and insert whatever punctuation happens to be in there as well. And the little but that doesn't affect the timestamp value, which was a little bit annoying, but it wasn't a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of the things I noticed that's really interesting with the file you send me is that some of the values seem to be out of order sometimes. What do you mean? Like, uh, for instance, uh, when you send me the labels that I see that the uh, text, for instance, the one you just sent me, you see it start from, say, 16 to 32, and then 89, 89, 97, 97. But the way I figure is that it should be in order of uh, the text should be in order of the timestamps, correct? Like the timestamps within the, um, you know, within the recorded podcast. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're not in order. Like if you actually open the file, you see at the very top, a series of steadily increasing numbers and then zero and then, uh, you know, and then starting over. Oh, that. So I actually have uh, two label tracks. One Mm -hmm. is the label track that I imported from the output of my conversion script. And the other is is a label track that is something that I entered manually where I'm taking some notes as I'm editing the podcast. So Mm -hmm. sometimes I will stop editing for a little while. And so I'll put a little, little note to myself where I left off. Um, and sometimes I will, <clears throat> sometimes I'll make, put a, a little mark in where, uh, I want to go back to that location to delete a bunch of stuff, um, hmm. just so I can find it more easily in audacity because the, the other labels are useful for, uh, figuring out what's, I mean, the other labels are exactly what's being said, but sometimes I want like a rough a rough marker for myself that I can quickly find. Mm. And so that's what the ones that are like at the very beginning of the file are. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just didn't know if it was sorting out of order or something like that. Oh no. Uh, That's just, that's just audacity saving all of my label tracks instead of just the transcript one. Do you know what other podcast makers do? Like, uh, do they use any kind of transcription like this? I am not aware of any podcast aside from ours that uses transcription. I think that I'm a little bit more picky about my edits than most people are. I mean, the antithesis of this would be like John Gruber, who just doesn't do any editing at all, pretty much. (laughs) 
I think what it is is that uh, these people are professional podcasters or better speakers than us anyway. And you have to force a whole bunch of edits for us to sound even remotely cogent. Well, me anyway. You're mostly fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're more strict on yourself than you are on me. <laughs> I, th- I think that's, that's sort of natural. People are yeah. more paranoid about what their own, what they said themselves. What's really funny about this whole podcast that we've been doing is that as I listen to podcasts, I find myself being less critical on my own speaking voice. Uh, because of other people's ums and ahs and not really making their point clear and stuff. Well, not just that. It's, uh, I mean, me listening to my own podcast that I've learned to actually be okay with my voice. Oh, Where okay. I, I think what it is, is that, you know, a lot of people when they hate hearing their own voice on some kind of recording, I think what it is, is that they only hear their own voice, you know, once every blue moon, you right. know, when they call their own answering machine or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Where at this point, I've been listening to my own podcast enough where I've become used to my own voice and I'm okay with it now. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Not that this is anything uh, remotely technical. It's it's, it's good that ALH has been therapeutic for you. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I've saved so much in therapy since starting this. (laughs) Uh, I had actually run out of uh, sleeping podcasts recently. I I have podcasts that I mostly listen to when I'm about to sleep and uh, just want something to to sort of listen to as I fall asleep. So maybe to maybe if some other noise is bothering me and I had run out of podcasts that are what I call sleeping podcasts that I really don't care what they say too much. And I find mildly interesting, but don't really care that much about. And so I'm like, well, Overcast has all these ALH podcasts sitting there. <laughs> I'm going to listen to myself and fall asleep. Oh, man. It felt that's... very narcissistic, but... Uh... Uh, uh, no, I look at it the opposite way. <laughs> I, look at, I look at it as being, you know, that we're pretty much... We're so boring that our own podcast is putting you <laughs> to sleep. <laughs> this has been a huge mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that. <laughs> no, that's that's pretty funny though. <laughs> ALH. So, if you don't listen for the tech, listen to it get to sleep. <laughs> My voice is very calming and soothing. You are in a safe place. <laughs> we are going to morph into an ASMR podcast. <laughs> I'm sure the Wilhelm screams did not mesh well with that. <laughs> that didn't wake you up? Oh, I I didn't listen to that one. I haven't done any. I haven't listened to our own podcast to, to fall asleep since uh, we did the, the Wilhelm screams. We we need to go back and re-edit the old podcast to take out the Wilhelm scream and add something that's more soothing. Spoiler ahead. <laughs> you need to you need to save that and add that to your uh, Farago. <laughs> So, um, going back to Rev.ai, is there anything that you would want them to change? Yeah, it it doesn't look like that many people are using their Python API yet because there's zero documentation on their web page. So that that would be some maybe some constructive criticism. It, it would be really nice if Rev.ai covered their Python API instead of just a how to get it, how to actually use it. I mean, it's super simple to use, 
but um, I mean, it would have been nice. Well, you could always offer to uh, document it for them. I can link you. So that's their documentation. It's really simple to use, and that but that only covers that only covers their curl API, not their Python API. Mm-hmm. For their Python API, they show like um, see the documentation says Python SDK. So I did the pip install of the Rev AI, but since there wasn't anything about how to actually use it, I ended up going to uh, GitHub and browsing their source files. I guess I could have done it on my local machine at the location that pip installed it as well, um, but it just felt easier for me to do it on GitHub. Yeah, I'm seeing what you mean here, The how the... Um I don't see any example in curl on how to actually post the file. Right. And it looks like, uh, you know, it looks like the argument that you're passing along looks like a piece of JSON. So it may actually be not possible to post the file directly using, um, using curl. Yeah. I have no idea. All I know Mm -hmm. is I saw the, I saw the function in Python to do it. So I used it. Right. In source slash rev AI. Yeah, it's the speech rec class, but it's yeah, super really, easy to use. I mean, you can just see submit job URL, submit yeah, job look, local file. I'm looking at that right now. It's, you know, ridiculously simple. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I just call uh, submit job local file and then um, I monitor it with view job and then I grab it with get transcript and use JSON. It's, it's, it's really really pretty simple and so i built myself a, a little it's not really a good i built i built myself a command line menu driven tool to manage that basically well i'm hoping you're not going to have to use this for uh our other podcast that we're going to do at some point <laughs> uh i would like to transcribe 30 seconds worth of audio so i guess uh should we wrap up this podcast do you want to do, I, I kind of wanted to talk about my ubiquity stuff for networking equipment. There's a semi professional brand called ubiquity and I, they're ostensibly for like enterprise, uh, networking s- solutions, but they're priced very well for something that's enterprise. And so a lot of prosumers end up using it as their networking equipment. And a lot of networking people will basically say that all of the consumer grade networking equipment is essentially garbage. Even though stuff like Ubiquity is more difficult to set up, uh, it's way more stable. You're much likely to get better performance and things like that. And so I bought into the hype um, about three years ago and, and got a Ubiquity access point along with their um along with their edge router edge router light and at the time i didn't really know what i was doing so i didn't realize that it would be a little bit annoying to combine their unify stuff which is their web managed uh which is sort of their web managed products that use like a, a thing called a unified controller and um then there's their edge router, their edge line, which is generally independently controlled. Like each device uh, is, you log into each device separately. 
And so I didn't realize that combining the edge router light with the Unify stuff um, would not be sort of the optimal solution. But it's been it's it's worked fine. Um, like for example, the edge router just uh, unlike most consumer stuff, it it definitely requires a lot more setup. Uh, you have to go and configure the routing between between the ports yourself. So there's the the WAN. Uh, port that's connecting to my uplink for uh, for my internet, and then I have to manually bridge that to the Ethernet ports in order to have the uh, DHCP server work properly and go out off to my other equipment. And unlike consumer stuff, the router is separate from the access points, so the access points only provide the the Wi-Fi not mm-hmm. do any of the uh, routing. Anyway, it, it had been pretty good and pretty reliable. But one thing that one thing I wanted to do, well, first, let me step back. Um, downstairs has always given me a lot of trouble with my Wi-Fi, and it started off uh, even back when I was using um, a Apple time capsule as my Wi-Fi. I got horrible reception downstairs and uh, even when I put access points downstairs I still got horrible reception so I just figured there was some sort of annoying interference down there and <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to that later uh, well I've I've had something similar with I mean I have a uh, time capsule downstairs and I have a airport express upstairs and I still get trouble with Wi-Fi all the time downstairs uh, or upstairs? upstairs okay upstairs yeah and so uh, I had hooked. I ended up getting three access points. So the ones that I had ordered uh, originally were the 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 Unify AC uh, Pro, um, the UAP Pro, which is a square thing that's no longer uh, available. Um, and then later, I supplemented it with a um, just a regular AP. And eventually I got a third one, which would be the newer generation, um, uh, the, and the newer generation AC, uh, pro, which was this time another round one, um, a dual, ac- dual radio pro access point. Um, uh, I put one of them in the bonus room, which is, uh, where most of my equipment goes. And then I put one of them in the garage and, I put one of them over in the family room all the way across the house. And these locations were not picked because I think that they are the best place for coverage in the house, but more because that is where I was able to run connections to. Uh, Mm -hmm. Two of them, like the internet comes in through the garage. And so that was easy. And then there's um, right above the garage is a way to route a cable to the bonus room. (laughs) And so those two were easy. And then the third one, um, Unfortunately, for whatever reason, the cable in my house um, does not go all the way through my house, and so I re- where I really wanted the it downstairs wasn't available. And but the, oddly, the connection all the way across the house to the family room, uh, there's a cable connection. So I used um, the Mocha router to get to the third uh, location to have another access point. Did you have any luck with the Mocha router? Because I mean. I had all kinds of trouble with mine. Um, yeah, actually, it works fine. The, the annoying thing was just there's not 
actually very much cable connect very many cable connections throughout my house. Anyway, that was about three years ago that I did all that, and things have been basically working uh, since then. And really good connections in the bonus room, and not so great connections downstairs. But since I never got good connections downstairs, and it was better than it was before, it didn't bother me too much. Anyway, time passes, and I got the Mac Mini, and so I'm like, well, I don't have a Ubiquiti switch uh, because all of the all of the stuff goes from the edge router, which is in the garage, and one of the one one of the connections it only has like a couple of Ethernet ports or three Ethernet ports, one for the uplink, and then two more. And so I used one of those to go directly to a access point in the garage. And then I used another one of those to go to a switch upstairs, uh, which is what I, uh, a switch that I carried over from when I lived in New York. And it's a gigabit switch. And then from there, it goes to my gazillions of devices, both in the closet, in the bonus room, and in the bonus room itself. After I got the Mac Mini, I had 10 gig e- Ethernet. Uh, available on that machine. And like, I want to use this. I, I want to take advantage of my 10 giggy, even though I have only one device that can. <laughs> and so I looked for a Ubiquiti uh, 10 giggy switch. And annoyingly, the only thing that's really available for their 10 giggy switch is one that's called the US 16 XG. And which would be fine, except, well, I mean, it's expensive. It's like $500 on Newegg. But other than that, it only has four 10 gigabit uh, RJ45 ports. All the rest of the ports, the other 12 ports, are what are called uh, SPF plus ports, which is sort of like a direct, uh, which is generally used for like a direct fiber uplink. Oh, okay. And so... (laughs) I don't have any devices that connect via SPF plus. And so I sort of put off ordering one of those for a while. I'm hoping that eventually they would make like a, a 16 port, uh, 10 giggy RJ 45, but I guess they never decided to do that. And so when I was looking into it again, I saw these, um, you can get transceivers that convert an SPF plus port to a gig E and those are like 20 bucks each. And so I wasn't too terribly sad about uh, getting those where I need them. And so I ended up ordering this uh, US 16 XG switch along with actually another Ubiquiti switch that I wanted to um, have closer to a bunch of my other devices. Uh, so I would the plan was I would use one of the SPF Plus ports and SPF Plus cable and attach it to one switch to the other. And since it, they all have like ridiculous internal bandwidth, I wouldn't be have some of the congestion that I might have from the inter- internal network traffic on my old switch. This led into another thing. I'm le- previously, before I got the Mac Mini, I had used a laptop to host the Unify controller. And it was an old 13-inch MacBook Pro. And I wanted to retire it, and so I and just use the uh, Mac Mini to host my um, the, the Unify controller, and that way I could have it running all the time, and it would be able to keep its uh, statistics running instead of uh, getting quit periodically. Uh, so I went and started to research how to migrate uh, 
the the APs, the devices from one controller to another. Um, each controller adopts its own Ubiquiti unified devices, um, and after they're divided, uh, d- adopted by that controller, then you can use the controller to control them. So I did the, I backed it up and restored it onto the Mac Mini, and this is actually an annoying process in itself, but I won't get into that. And then uh, I I tried to use the wizard to migrate them. And what it does is it posts a inform command. Um, so the Ubiquity devices, in order to get adopted, you send them a inform command, which is basically a URL that the controller is listening on to be informed of new devices to adopt. And I uh, did that on the Mac Mini. The Mac Mini could see the devices were on the network, but no matter what I did, I couldn't get them to adopt it. And this was before I had even tried putting in the switch. And this this was on um, this was on New Year's Eve. Uh, so right before we went out to dinner that night, um, I I wasn't able to get them to adopt. I'm like, okay, maybe I could just reset them to factory default, and then they'll adopt. And um, one of the things I noticed was that my controller was saying that one of my devices uh, was unsupported. And so I knew that I wouldn't be able to adopt that one at all with this version of the controller because apparently it had been EOL'd. Uh, um, <laughs> so you need another... Uh... So I had to download a previous version of the controller for that device uh, so it would still be able to manage it. And so I tried that using that controller. I still couldn't get the Mac Mini to adopt it. And so I decided to just uh, do a factory reset on all of the access points. And so I SSH'd into each of the access points and issued a uh, restore default command. And they <laughs> came back up, and the Mac Mini still couldn't adopt them. And at this point, I had to go to dinner, and my internet was completely broken uh, for any sort of Wi-Fi. So all that to try and get 10 giggy yeah. on your Mac Mini. And this is before I had even installed the Switch. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was just trying to get my Mac mini to be the controller. See, what you're looking to do is so much more advanced than what I'm looking to do with potentially <laughs> having a ubiquity. So I thought, well, I'm not using a ubiquity switch to connect to the Mac mini. Maybe, maybe that's the problem. And so I installed the switch and I tried to get the Mac mini to adopt the switch and since this is a fresh device, I'm like, this is this has got to work. But no, it couldn't adopt my freshly installed device either. Mm. So then I went to dinner and <laughs> then I went home. And since nobody uh, and then I let me just go and try using my laptop again to adopt all these things. And so I tried to do that. And hey, they're all adopted again. So the problem is my Mac Mini. I don't know if it's because it's a 10 gig E thing that Ubiquity uh, has not thought of or what the deal is, but my Mac Mini does not want to adopt them and even with direct connections to the access points will not. Now, now they're just back up on 2013 MacBook Pro. <sighs> but, but now... I have the 10 gig E switch installed. 
Uh, and so I have the 10 gig switch going directly to two of, well, not directly, one is through the Mocha thing, uh, mm-hmm. to my, my access points that are throughout the house. And so I figure, what the heck? Let me go and do a speed test uh, on my devices that are downstairs. And so I have an iMac that's connected via Wi-Fi downstairs. Mm-hmm. And I do it, and lo and behold... My speed issue and my connectivity issues have disappeared. So I got like four times the Wi-Fi throughput as I was previously. Well, that sounds honestly fantastic. You're saying this is this is by um, getting the upgraded hardware or this was... Uh... I don't know exactly what caused it because I, I did a whole bunch of things. I upgraded firmware. I installed the Ubiquiti switch. Um, I mean, I did hardware resets. So one of these things fixed my downstairs internet issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like all networking things, it is magic voodoo nonsense. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a different um, competency in IT. Yeah. You know, we're, we're developers, not really network people. Right. And so now it's back on my 2013 MacBook Pro where I don't want it, especially since the battery is completely dead and I can't actually move, disconnect it without shutting the machine down so it's not portable anyway. Uh, and But I don't want to deal with potentially incompatible ubiquity stuff because it's very possible that the switch being in the way is what caused the slowdown in the first place, the non-ubiquity switch. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, you know what? Just screw it. I don't want unsupported hardware, and I don't want um, to use my MacBook Pro as the unified controller. I'm just going to order more ubiquity equipment here. <laughs> and so I'm repl- it hasn't arrived yet, but I, I ordered their cloud key, which basically acts as a little miniature computer in itself. That its whole purpose is to run the Unify software and control all the other devices. And I'm fairly sure that'll work because that's made by Ubiquity. So I ordered their their UIP ACHD, which is has things like beam forming and other stuff to get much higher uh, network throughput. Um, so it's 2.4 gigahertz radio rate is 800 megabits per second, um, nearly twice as fast as the AC Pro that I'm replacing. And it has not been EOL'd. <laughs> and that'll be my main... Wi-Fi access point uh, that I'll probably replay that I'm going to put in the bonus room, which is where I need most of my stuff to be. Then uh, I figured, what the heck? Uh, while I'm replacing stuff, I will also replace my edge router light with a um, with their USG gateway router. And uh, so this their USG is their Unify one, and so unlike the edge router, it is uh, controllable via the cloud key just like or it's controllable via the unified controller just like everything else uh it can report its its packet statistics directly to the unified controller instead of having me to log in to two different places to monitor that stuff the only disadvantage is that the edge light has a very powerful command line interface that i can use to do all sorts of crazy fancy things that i will no longer be able to do uh with the usg but it uh, is much more. It is much easier to configure 
and it will be in line with all of my other networking equipment. So when you're saying you can do all kinds of command line stuff, I take it that it's uh, authenticated. Like, are you are you SSHing directly into the device and then putting in login and password and then doing commands? So it runs a little mini web server. I can do that. I can SSH directly into the device, or I mm-hmm. can go and use its built-in web server and then click um, uh, a, a build a terminal thing, which effectively does the same thing. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then each of the access points you can SSH into as well to issue commands if you don't want to do it via the controller. Just as long as it's something that I can pretty much secure in place where other people can't issue commands if they're on my network. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You can. It, it's definitely all authenticated. So um, where this is coming in, at least for me, is that uh, I'm seriously evaluating getting new uh, networking equipment, mm-hmm. mainly because right now I have um, in my house, I have a time capsule downstairs and I have an airport express upstairs. And um, the uh, I have Ethernet going to each of them. So I'm pretty much I have Ethernet run within the house. Mm-hmm. And what I was thinking of doing is instead of getting a mesh router, I was thinking Ubiquity would be potentially nice because each of the access points require a uh, Ethernet switch. So you're not dealing with things like, uh, you know, the signal between access points or any of the mesh crosstalk or anything like that. Right. And um, Ubiquity actually has their own mesh equipment uh, called Amplify, mm-hmm. um, which is supposedly very good. But the the enterprise direct routers are definitely better and more reliable. So yeah, Wirecutter here is talking about the UAP line. So I don't know if that's yeah, the that's same the line same line as what I was okay. using. So it looks like I would end up getting a bunch of access points separately and then a router. Yes. What you would want to do is basically what I had just described my conversion to, where mm-hmm. you would get the USG gateway. And then you would get however many access points you want, probably two in your case. I was thinking either two or three, but yeah. And then uh, optionally, you can get their cloud key for the management. And like I said, at first I cheaped out and just used one of my laptops to do it. Um, And now I'm thinking I should have just gotten the cloud key in the first place and made sure everything works smoothly. Can you get it after the fact? You can, but then you have to do um, migration to it, which, as I discussed earlier, is a little bit annoying. Okay, <laughs> because you have to okay. you have to back up the you have to back up the configuration file, restore it where you want to put it, and then be, but that doesn't get you the adoptions automatically, as I was mentioning. You still mm-hmm. then have to go and inform the new controller uh, about your networking equipment or about the access points, and they have it has to still adopt it. Okay. So I'd recommend just starting off the way that you want it. Get something with cloud key. However, if you want, I can send you my uh, old edge router and my old uh, <laughs> that, the, the <laughs> end of life access point. Uh, I, I think I'm okay, but thank you. <laughs> Ooh, we could we could have a contest. Get 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 Richard's old ubiquitous equipment <laughs> and name Mark's computer. Whoever submits the best name for Mark's equipment uh, computer. Gets uh, Richard's ubiquity equipment. So the two main constraints I'm looking for with this, I mean, it looks pretty good from what I can see so far, is that uh, one, I want to make sure that I can have a guest network. Yes. And then two is that uh, I want to make sure that on the router I can hook up, say, a hard drive and uh, have time machine kind of like how um, I do on the time capsule right now. Uh, that, not as much. 
I mean, I suppose worst case, I could just keep my time capsule and uh, turn off any sort of uh, Wi-Fi networking on it. Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. So you can just plug your time capsule into the network and it will mm-hmm. maintain its ability to do uh, to be a backup location for your machine. And basically it becomes a network hard drive. Yeah, fair enough. And then, yeah, just turn off DHCP, turn off um, Wi-Fi, uh, and you should be okay. I, I actually did that for a little while until until my hard drive crashed on my time capsule. Yeah, it's just the networking is bad on this. It's one thing that Apple just isn't that good at. Well, at the time, it wasn't too bad. Now it's now it's not great. I mean, it was it was never top of the line, but it was it wasn't horrible or anything. It's not so much you know having 802.11ac or any new technologies like that. It's just that sometimes I get it where it ends up dropping off out of Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. or sometimes I get it where loading a web page is slow, mm-hmm. and I find that it's actually faster on uh, LTE. <laughs> there, the XKCD comic, yeah. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is <laughs> this is an amazing realization because I ended up running into that so many times where I would disconnect Wi-Fi and my internet connection would be faster. Yeah. You definitely are yeah. a good candidate for switching to the Ubiquiti equipment. Yeah, maybe I'll give that a shot. Then we can discuss your own uh, configuration issues. I mean, I, I don't think I'm going to go for a 10 gigabit Ethernet. I don't think I need it. Well, that it. wasn't the cause of my problems. The cause of my problems was trying to migrate the stupid Unify controller. So I guess start off with cloud. Yeah, start off with a cloud key. It'll make your life easier. It'll be an extra 100 bucks, but yeah. it'll make your life easier. Yeah. Well... Should we wrap the show for now? Oh, shoot. Thank you for listening to ALH. You can visit us on Twitter at Aliens Land Here, and you can visit us on the web and look at all the fun show notes and buy all of the products that we link at uh, alh.fm. Thank you to our... <sighs> maybe this maybe this running joke needs to end. Okay, yeah, I Let's think just, this joke needs to yeah. end. For those of you who weren't aware, we do not have a Patreon page. Okay, catch you next time. Oh, that's the joke now. We're going to start one. (laughs) And then we'll never mention it. Or what we do is we put it on our show notes, but we have it be one character on the show note that's highlighted. There we go. Where if if you find the secret character and you click on it, it'll go to our Patreon page. We'll reward you by letting you send us money. Did we want to talk about shapes and beats within this podcast? Oh, I completely forgot about that. Yeah, so I ended up finishing Shapes and Beats, at least the story mode. I haven't unlocked all the levels, and I haven't even started doing any of the challenges that are on there. Yeah, did you did you take a look at them? I saw that there was something saying beat 25 challenges, beat 50 challenges, stuff like that. Yeah, those are for like unlocking additional tracks, right? Though you can play some of them without unlocking them, because... Uh, every time you go and do a challenge, you pick between one of three tracks, and sometimes those tracks are things that you haven't unlocked yet. Have um, Now, do you specifically tell it to do a specific challenge, or do you just go into a map and do what they say? Because I was trying to... Um, the first challenge I said was beat a track without using, um, without using dash, mm-hmm. which I did, but it didn't seem to unlock any kind of challenge did you do it in either challenge or playlist mode oh no no i didn't that's probably why yeah you have in order to get your little beat points or to on or to get 
fulfill the challenge requirements. Yeah, you have to play in either challenge or playlist mode. Oh, okay. Well, in any case, I beat story mode. And uh, Just Shapes and Beats is one of those few games I run into where it actually gets more satisfying and more entertaining the further I go into the game. Like, I found, spoiler, the last boss fight, you know, the last boss fight was very satisfying. And then also the uh, the close to me, mm-hmm. the sad cube boss fight was <laughs> really, really good. Yeah, I, I agree. And I really liked also how the music went along with the level selection stuff as well, particularly mm-hmm. when there there's the like the factory that's turning the blue cactuses into the red cactuses. <laughs> right. That, that just looked worked out so nicely i think and i also found it really fun and amusing that you could actually die on the world map like just die and get reset slightly or is that yeah die and get die and get reset slightly okay yeah there was a part where cactuses are falling and you have to avoid them oh right 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 yeah i I remember yeah it's just the the setback is pretty small so Mm -hmm. it's really small but I mean, as you see, I like to play games maliciously, so I want to see what happens. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you can actually die on this. Oh, that's kind of cool. But I mean, it, it got me thinking about how, I mean, the strong suit in the game is definitely the boss fights. And some of those boss fights just seem, you know, pretty much up there with like top boss fights when it comes to, mem- you know, being memorable. It just is so incredibly polished how they made everything work together with uh, the music and the boss fights and where you move or across the level and what and how even like how they fade in what is going to become uh, something that's going to turn pink um, and kill you like how even the little fade in goes with the music and then uh, the, maybe the, the pink comes like with the actual beat and whatnot and everything like that. Mm-hmm. I think what I like, like, say, for instance, with the final boss is that it feels like an actual bona fide buildup. Right. So um, what I love with the last boss is that you end up that whole level, you end up going up the really, really right. tall tower and it feels the way the screen moves. It feels like you're going up. And then when you see the last boss, it feel you know, he feels kind of like a king where they take his crown off. Mm hmm. They take his crown off and they prepare. And with the music, you know, the music counts down. Mm -hmm. Right. Counting down to being able to start fighting him. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know the word is overused, but I feel like epic is a good description. Yeah. And and how they worked out, like the feeling like you're moving up was kind of cool. Like when the enemies fire the dots at you, like they, they are only moving like slightly up and then as you get faster they actually kind of start going back down and or staying in place and whatnot and what i also love is that's the screen in some cases the screen moves along with the beat of the music yeah like they the the sort of thunking the like physicality Mm -hmm. of uh the beat uh comes across very well I'm reminded of like there's this meme with a building that's doing jump rope Mm-hmm. And uh, as the building hits the ground, it sort of shakes. And even though there's no audio with that um, video, you can still, it still seems like you're listening to something go funk. 
and the way that the screen shakes uh, on different parts of the beat and whatnot is very reminiscent of that sort of physical feeling. It reminded me of the first time I played Res, where the controller went along with the, uh, you know, with pretty much the beat of the music. Mm-hmm. And it feels, you know, but this is a very, very strong visual cue. Yeah. You know, that pretty much the level is kind of shaking along with it. And I mean, it's only, it's mildly distracting, you know, when you're trying to get past things, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're trying to get past bullet shots and whatnot, but it's not, it doesn't feel unfair. Right. That's, you know, that's what I really like about it. Yeah. The game, the game tries hard to not make you feel like it's not being fair. Um, It's pretty generous with, the hitboxes and um, the fact that things that are not fully pink don't even kill you, stuff like that. Well, I I do have to admit, I did laugh pretty hard when I saw that final boss with a guitar oh, on yeah. top of the tower. I'm like, oh god, Mad Max. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, was it was pretty funny. Like, I was I was kind of wondering, okay, is he coming back? Am I gonna have to fight him again? Um, even though they already did all that, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's not going to have to, I'm not going to have to, but it's honestly, I mean, I was hoping for it. Yeah. I was hoping because it felt like the fact that in the beginning of the game, you fight him and then you fight him again Mm -hmm. and then he just kind of goes away. And that doesn't seem from a story narrative perspective, it is better when it begins and ends with the same boss. But you did fight him multiple times. There's, um... There's the time at the top of the tower, right? And mm-hmm. then he comes back to life and does the crying one, right? The 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 boss when he's like have the like the crying face and everything like that that comes the, after the top of the building. I think. Oh, 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 you're oh, I consider that part of the same boss fight. You know, it's like the second. Uh, okay, because it's like two different levels. Okay, it is two different levels. You're right. And then after that, when you end up getting shots, you know, so you technically fight him three times at the right. end. So the last one I don't but, really think counts, but yeah, because uh, I'm not even sure if you could die. I didn't even check that. You, I'm fairly certain you cannot die because that one I'm like, OK, this last level is so hard and I didn't want to go back to the beginning mm-hmm. by testing this. <laughs> so, yeah, if you go back to if you go back to the story mode, they're separately selectable levels. Okay. Yeah, so you realistically you fight him in the beginning. You fight him in the beginning twice, mm-hmm. and then you fight him at the end realistically three times. Yeah. Between, you know, the three different modes. And, and what did you think about, like, getting punched down several times? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. The fact that you end up getting broken and you have to do the whole continue thing as part of the, uh, part of the story, as part yeah. of the game, as part of the story... I liked it because it felt seamless. Mm-hmm. It felt like it was actually happening rather than watching a cutscene. Right. I mean, it's just, it was so, it's such a good game. And I, I hope I haven't seen, you know, how successful it is, how successful it was, but I'm hoping for a follow-up. Yeah. I'd love to see one as well. You know, but not just DLC, because I feel like what made this, what I like so much about the game is that it felt cohesive from, you know, having the one boss in the beginning to the one boss at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think of, um, they actually say that it's a good part of storytelling, is that a a good part of storytelling is having symmetry. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, like, for instance, I've heard that uh, RoboCop 
is almost, uh, you know, what happens in RoboCop, it almost mirrors it from beginning to end, that the end <laughs> is very similar to the beginning. I think of other games, like uh, think Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Mm-hmm. You start fighting Dracula and you end fighting Dracula. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of the Final Fantasy games, I think, are that way. Uh, trying to think. Yeah. Uh, actually, Final Fantasy 1, you, uh, your first uh, first battle, first major battles with Garland. And then at the end of the game, you end up seeing Garland again, yeah. which basically morphs into chaos. They sort of try to do that to show how the how the characters have grown and whatnot. Right. I mean, granted, in this game, it's you're still a cube, and you don't really get any new powers until you are able. <laughs> oh, well, you're not three D. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're not three D. Yeah. Well. What's funny is that you don't really get any new powers, at least until the very, very end where you get firepower. Right. But they still did a good job of trying to demonstrate that you have friends. Mm -hmm. You have friends and you have friendship and camaraderie. And it's done in a very, very abstract way, which I thought was, you know, it's clever. Yeah. And how you build and how you collect your friends over the course of the, I mean, because all of your friends are basically collected in between the levels. Uh, but right. they still feel like a big part of the game. Yeah, they do. And, I mean, compare this to Celeste, which, you know, Celeste is also a masterpiece of a game. But the way you collect friends and have relationships is told in a very, very different form of, you know, story format. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's done with lots and lots of text where, you know, yeah, you still have emotion, but it's you still have emotion, but it's uh, you know it's much more involved. Where this in just shapes and beats is telling a story with very basic, you know, basic demonstration of emotion. Yeah, they 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 communicate a lot with the animation of the characters, and mm-hmm. they're very expressive without ever having any dialogue. I just I keep thinking about how wrong Roger D, Roger Ebert was when it came to uh, <laughs> saying that video games aren't art, art. Aren't art, yeah. You know, and it's like, I think I, I think he's right that I think most video games aren't any sort of high art, you know, but uh, I think that every now and then you do run into something that's uh, kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word, transcendent. 